from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony. It's Deviance in Cast, with your host Eric P. Y'all ready for this? So powerful. Now that not only pals are placing it. A few heart-stopping seconds of anxiety. Hello, Earthlings, and welcome to the Deviant Syncast, your weekly overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I am Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scath in the world of video games, a.k.a. Scartole in the world of Wikipedia, and the only deviant thing about me is my socio-cultural heterogeneity. I'm going to be honest with you people. It's late. I'm tired. It's been. It's only Tuesday, and it's already been a heck of a week at school. I'm worn out. I've been meeting with students to help them make good stories, and uh, I got I got so much trouble on my mind, as Chuck D says. Uh, but I'm committed to doing this, so let's freaking do it. One of the reasons I'm so worn out is because it's been a hard week to be a human rights activist. There's been stuff going down. I can't even express how frustrated I am these days. I want to start with Foxconn, actually. A lot of people want to hear me talk about Coney, and I know I've, I've not written the thing on the website about Coney yet. I will, I will, I will. Thank you for your patience. But Foxconn needs to come first, because there's this thing that's gone on. Um, okay, This American Life is a very popular podcast. Uh, it's a radio show from WBEZ in Chicago, and it's on uh, Public Radio International. or Yeah, Public Radio International. And they had a story that ran a while ago. Uh, it ran in Once Upon a Time. Uh, about a broadcast in January of 2012. Uh, and it was it featured a guy named Mike Daisy, who is a sort of monologist. He's a spoken word artist. Who knows exactly how he classifies himself. He does a one-man show called The Agony and the Ecstasy of Steve Jobs. And, the, and This American Life featured a, an extended excerpt from that show talking about when he went to China to visit Foxconn workers at the factory there. Okay, turns out he made a lot of the stuff up. This is really annoying and stupid. It makes me pissed off because, first of all, the fact that he made it up is annoying. Obviously, duh. But here's the thing. When, when, he brought, when he did that show and then This American Life broadcast it, a lot of people heard his reporting and said, that's really messed up because he talked about how young the workers were and how bad the conditions were and they were using certain chemicals that result in debilitating conditions and all the rest of it. And he's backed off a lot of that stuff and he has said that he's not a journalist, he's an entertainer and blah, blah, blah. And Daisy said... Uh, it was completely wrong for me to have it on this show, and that's something I deeply regret. He expressed regret also to, quote, the people who are listening, the audience of This American Life, who know that it is a journalism enterprise, I'm sorry if they feel betrayed, end quote. So his whole thing is, oh, I'm not a journalist, and so I'm mixing fact and fiction, and I'm trying to present an impressionistic view of blah, blah, blah. I don't want to hear that, and here's why. Because a lot of us have been talking about Foxconn for a while and trying to let people know that the conditions under which our Apple iPods and our little laptop computers are made, and it's not just Apple, of course. This has never been just about Apple, because pretty much every electronics manufacturer in the world makes their stuff at the WorldCom plant. And lest you forget, or in case you don't know, a few years ago, there were a bunch of people at the Foxconn plants who were so fed up with the working conditions there, they jumped off the roof. And what Foxconn did to try to prevent this from happening again in the future is they put up some nets so that people couldn't jump off the roof. That's the level of atrocity we're dealing with here, people. And it all comes down to the fact that people at Chinese factories cannot organize independent unions. The thing is this. As soon as Mike Daisy's story went out on the... Is it Mike Daisy? Uh... 
I don't want to get his name wrong. Yeah, Mike Daisy. As soon as the story went out, uh, everybody started calling in, this is wrong, this is horrible. And they started putting pressure on Apple. Hey, Apple, why don't you allow for independent audits? And they actually did for the first time ever. Now, there's questions about how the independent audit was run, but that's a different matter. The point is, his story, and it's a story... It raised people's ire and they got active because that's what happens when people find out about this stuff. They take action, they want it to stop. And that's good. That's a great thing that people see something wrong in the world and they go, hey, that shouldn't be happening. I want it to stop. And that's what people did in response to this story. So now the fact that he's retracting this story and that This American Life's turning its back on him and they just released a whole new podcast full of explanations about what's not true and how they fact-checked it. And I give This American Life a lot of credit for that. The point is this. Now, if I start talking about Foxconn, anybody who's familiar with this whole thing with This American Life will go, well, I heard a lot of those things just blown out of proportion, and there's a guy, and he lied, and that's what's going on when it comes to Foxconn. You can't trust anything you hear, because who knows who's making stuff up. You know what? I don't even want to hear that for a second, because there's a human rights labor organization in Hong Kong called SACOM, S-A-C-O-M, and I've talked about them before, and I'm going to talk about them again, because they released their own press release in the wake of this This American Life thing, and they said this. The title of their press release is, Apple and Foxcom are lying and calling the kettle black. Quote, Students and scholars against corporate misbehavior, SACOM, is disturbed by Foxconn's comments as if it is innocent. Because Foxconn had said, Oh, I'm happy the truth prevails, and I'm glad Mike Daisy's lies were exposed. Okay. So this is back to the SACOM statement. Since 2008, SACOM has been monitoring the working conditions at Apple suppliers in China, including Foxconn and Wintech. During 2010 and 2011, we issued five investigative reports on Apple's unethical labor practices in four different cities. From our research, the credibility of both Foxconn and Apple is in doubt. Even worse, Foxconn has used money to buy the silence of its victims and cover up scandals. The comment from Foxconn about somebody else telling lies is a case of the pot calling the kettle black. Now, it's true that Mike Daisy made stuff up and the fact that he's lying about an issue that we are trying to make some progress on just drives me crazy because it makes the real work of actual activists so much more difficult you're not helping dude ah! speaking of people who are not helping let's talk about coney um many people who follow this well okay if you know about coney at all you know that the guy who started it uh jason russell Okay, he didn't start Coney. <laughs> I don't even know where to begin. Invisible Children Incorporated created this viral video called Coney 2012. I will write about it soon. I'm going to go into a lot of detail about it. Um, the point is that this guy, Jason Russell, is the guy who helped to found Invisible Children. Now, I want to point out just for the record that Jason Russell first found out about Uganda when he went there as part of a mission trip with a church. And the, the purpose of that trip was to help, you know, bring people to Jesus. And when he got there, Jason Russell looked around and he said, you know what, these people don't need Jesus. They need disease prevention. They need clean water. They need, you know, help from the warlords who are coming and kidnapping children. So he got back to the U.S. He's like, wow, people don't even know about this. we got to raise awareness. we got to tell people about these invisible children that nobody knows about. So he set to work trying to tell people about this catastrophe going on in Uganda. Now, it took him many years before he broke through and everybody suddenly knew who Kony is. And there, as I've said before, there are a lot of criticisms about the Coney 2012 campaign. There are a lot of criticisms about Invisible Children. I'm not even going to get into that. The point is, I believe that Invisible Children has a good mission. I believe that they have uh, a desire to see things in Uganda improve. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean I agree with all the tactics. But it also means that I do not buy for a second 
the sort of thing we see at, I don't even know who David Icky is, but apparently DavidIcky.com had this thing that got posted by someone named J2K. It may not even be David Icky. It may just be some guy on the forum. But this post, and I had it forwarded to me. Hey, what do you think about this perspective of the Coney 2012 campaign? Um, it makes me sick because they talk in the scene. Okay, there's a scene in the movie where they show the way that media usually gets decided. And at the top is a very small group of people who have the money, and then beneath them is the government and the people who control the media, and then below them there's the rest of us, and we usually get told by the people at the top, here's what the news is, and we're supposed to focus on that. And the video uh, turns that upside down and says, look, we are the people, we get to decide in a democracy, ostensibly, we're supposed to set the agenda for the world, and we're supposed to say, here's what we want the world to pay attention to. Here's what we want our government to pay attention to. Because if we're members of a democracy, we get to say, hey, government, we want you to do this, right? Isn't that the way a government's supposed to, a democracy is supposed to be worked? Yeah, that's how it's supposed to work, right? And that's, and that, and it's true that when they first came back from Uganda, they got no reaction from the government. And exactly as the video says, it's because the government didn't consider Uganda to be in the U.S. best interests, okay? Invisible Children got organized and said, we want the government to do something about this. I hate to tell you people, that's exactly what we did when it came to East Timor, okay? So when people talk about, uh, well, what's this going to do? You know what? The first step is always raising awareness, okay? If people can't find Uganda on a map, you have to start by showing them, here's where Uganda is. Because you know how I know? When people couldn't find East Timor on a map, they would never even heard of it. We had to start by saying, here's where East Timor is. I still have to do that. Every semester, I take my students through the whole story of East Timor. And I start with, where is it? Because no one's ever heard of it, even now. Okay? So awareness is important. And I hate to hear people writing it off as if, uh, he's just raising awareness. It doesn't do anything. <laughs> However, this forum post on davidicky.com uh, says, by creating this quote-unquote movement and making young people actually demand that the U.S. government intervene in Africa, the masterminds behind this campaign would manage the impossible, reversing the propaganda model in order to make it emanate from the people. By doing so, the elite's agenda is not only accepted by the masses, it is perceived as a victory by them. In other words, the whole Coney 2012 thing is just a plot or a tool of the elite powers in this country trying to say, oh, here, we want to get people to support U.S. military action in Africa. It's not a bunch of people who have seen the suffering and horror uh, created by Joseph Kony and other warlords. We'll get to that in a second. No, instead they say, oh, it must be the man is trying to get us all concerned about Kony so he can give a false premise for sending troops into Africa. Now, I've said I'm not comfortable with the idea of sending troops into Africa. However, I don't buy for a minute this notion that it's some plot. You know what? Because the next thing out of these people's mouths is going to be, well, you know, also, 9-11 is an inside job. And also, you know, uh, swine flu is a creation of, you know, some scientists in a lab somewhere. They wanted to inflict it on people in Mexico or whatever it is. These lunatic conspiracy theories, because they can't bear the thought that ordinary people are getting involved and taking action in a way that they don't happen to agree with. Because it's just, ah, it's not convenient. Meanwhile, in Sudan, talk about stories that aren't getting covered. Everybody who's complaining about Kony, whatever, I don't want to hear it, okay? You can either uh, get involved with Amnesty International, you can shut up, as I said last week. And I don't mean shut up literally, I just mean tone down your rhetoric and recognize that some people are doing human rights work and you really should be involved in a meaningful way rather than just criticizing all the time. 
Um, Amnesty International recently held a protest uh, during which they called for people to be aware of the human rights crisis going on in Sudan because a lot of people don't know about it and we should and we should take action and you can take action, okay? As they said on their post, and I'll put put a link to this, the Amnesty International uh, USA website uh, have a post about Sudan. In both states, including the Nuba Mountains, Sudanese Armed Forces, SAF, are conducting a campaign of indiscriminate bombing against civilians. The resulting destruction of livelihoods combined with the blockade of humanitarian aid is putting nearly half a million people on the brink of starvation. Amnesty International is urging the Security Council to act on the recommendations made by the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights regarding South Kordofan, including demanding the government of Sudan grant access to human rights monitors and other things. Uh, the people protesting called for the president of Sudan, Omar al-Bashir, to be arrested and taken to the International Criminal Court, where he has been indicted, by the way. So, Again, if you you know what I'm kind of sick of even talking about Coney because if you if you're in favor of it, fine, great, learn more about it, do things, okay. If you're not in favor of the Coney 2012 campaign, you still need to be doing things. There's still things you can do, okay. And I don't like the notion that disliking the Coney 2012 campaign leads a lot of people to sort of a cynical attitude. Well, it's all a bunch of hooey. No, it's not. Take some action of some kind, people, okay. And again, I will link to the Amnesty International uh, urgent action about what's going on in. Sudan, so that people can do something. Speaking of Northern Africa and the Middle East, um, oh boy, let's talk about Syria. There's a new report that came out from the Associated Press. Um, said Syrian forces to take eastern city from rebels. And the original uh, news story that I saw had to do with uh, human rights atrocities being conducted by the Syrian rebel forces. Uh, Human Rights Watch this week put out a report that said that uh, the armed opposition groups are committing abuses. Uh, These abuses include kidnapping, detention, and torture of security force members, government supporters, and people identified as members of pro-government militias called Shabiha. Human Human Rights Watch also received reports of executions by armed opposition groups of security force members and civilians. And again... This goes to show that the situation in Syria, as in other places, is complex. And I don't mean to say that this means X or Y for what the United States ought to do or other governments, but it does mean that we have to resist the simplistic oversimplification of... I suppose you couldn't have any other kind of oversimplification, could you? Could you have a complex oversimplification? You've really made this situation appear simple, but it's so complicated the way you've described it. I know, that's ludicrous. Hey, I told you, it's late, I'm exhausted, okay? Get off my back. I haven't even eaten dinner yet. Uh, the It's only 6 p.m. Yeah, but I'm becoming an old person. You know, I get 6 and I'm like, whew, because I have lunch at like 11 o'clock, so it's a long time. Get off my back! Oh yeah, Syria, human rights, atrocities, huh? <laughs> We have to stop looking at the world in terms of black and white and saying this person's the bad guy, this person's the good guy, okay? Uh, We have to speak out against human rights abuses wherever they are, and we have to put pressure on people wherever we can who violate human rights and say, that's not okay, yeah? And again, I would argue that this is an example of how armed resistance will backfire in terms of world opinion because if people see uh, a resistance movement doing things that are bad, they'll go, oh, I don't know who the good guys are and I don't know who I should support in a moral sense, so I'm just going to avoid the whole situation altogether. And of course, that's not a good idea. All right, real quick, let's talk about Afghanistan. (sighs) On the 11th of March of this year, uh, nine days ago, there was a young man named... Um, Robert Bales, who went into a village and killed a bunch of people in near Kandahar, in the Kandahar province of Afghanistan, in the Panjwai district. 
And one of the interesting things about this for me is that on the Wikipedia article, the title is Ponjwai Shooting Spree. Now, uh, other instances of somebody going and killing a bunch of civilians, they're often referred to as massacres. And I'm sure, I haven't looked into it, but I'm sure that there has been a big debate on Wikipedia about whether this should be referred to as a shooting spree or a massacre. Because in the first paragraph, they always say it's called this or it's sometimes called this. Yeah. So when I do articles about you know a Chinua Achebe novel, it'll say called this, sometimes translated as that or whatever it is. Um, I guess his novels aren't translated, so that's a bad example. But Balzac, okay, right. Uh, anyway, so the first article, the, the first sentence of the article says, the Panjwai shooting spree, parenthesis, or Kandahar massacre, end parenthesis, occurred in the early morning of Sunday, blah, blah, blah. So the official title is Panjwai shooting spree. If you were to look up Kandahar massacre, you would get delivered right to this page. It's just interesting, okay, what do we call it? Do we call it a massacre or do we call it a shooting spree? Uh, there's so many things you could say about it right here. I just wanted to emphasize that Robert Fisk, as always, has something to say about this. And if you don't know Robert Fisk, I do recommend you look into him. I don't always agree with everything he says, but he is a good journalist, and he spent a long time reporting on things in the Middle East, and he often is able to look at the perspective of people in the Middle East, especially the Arab and the Muslim world, and say, here's the way they see things. And... He's not necessarily saying, I agree with the way they see things, but it's so important for us to be able to look at, for instance, U.S. actions from the point of view of people in that region, rather than just looking at it as we would want them to see it. Anyway, Robert Fisk said this, um, and he has a very sort of acerbic way of writing, and I, I would point out, I don't agree with everything Robert Fisk is saying here, but I do think it's an important point that he's making. Uh, he starts out by saying, I'm getting a little bit tired of the deranged soldier story. It was predictable, of course. The 38-year-old staff sergeant who massacred 16 Afghan civilians, including nine children near Kandahar this week, had no sooner returned to base than the defense experts and the think tank boys and girls announced that he was, quote, deranged, end quote. Not an evil, wicked, mindless terrorist, which he would be, of course, if he had been an Afghan, especially a member of the Taliban, but merely a guy who went crazy. So that's the first paragraph of Fisk's report. And I suppose I shouldn't call it a report. It's sort of a commentary. Uh, but the other point he makes later on is this. Uh, the Afghan narrative has been curiously lobotomized, censored even, by those who are trying to explain this appalling massacre in Kandahar. They remember the Quran burnings. And so he's, sorry, this is me interjecting now. Uh, he's sort of trying to look at how has the story been told to people in the United States and Europe, which is a little different than the way it's been covered in Afghanistan, for instance. So, okay, he says, uh, the media has remembered the Quran burnings when American troops in Bagram chucked Qurans on a bonfire and the deaths of six NATO soldiers, two of them Americans, which followed. But blow me down if they didn't forget, and this applies to every single report on the latest killings. A remarkable and highly significant statement from the U.S. Army's top commander in Afghanistan, General John Allen, exactly 22 days ago. Indeed, it was so unusual a statement that I clipped the report of Allen's words from my morning paper and placed it inside my briefcase for, fu briefcase for future reference. Allen told his men that, quote, now is not the time for revenge for the deaths of two U.S. soldiers killed in Thursday's riots, end quote. They should, he said, quote, resist whatever urge they might have had to strike back, end quote, after an Afghan soldier killed the two Americans, quote, there will be moments like this when you're searching for the meaning of this loss. There will be moments like this when your emotions are governed by anger and a desire to strike back. Now is not the time for revenge. Now is the time to look deep inside your souls, remember your mission, remember your discipline, remember who you are. End quote. So, he says, Fisk goes on to say that, you know what, look, if this, if this guy who committed these killings is just sort of as the Defense Department and the U.S. media are, are, are portraying him as, somebody who just sort of went off the deep end and lost his mind and killed a bunch of people because he just didn't know what he was doing. He's completely lunatic. Um, I, I don't... It, it seems like that quote from Allen is 
something important to mention because it, it goes to point out the fact that there are a lot of guys in Afghanistan, U.S. soldiers and soldiers from elsewhere, who are under an incredible amount of stress, an incredible amount of pressure, and they are trying to deal with seeing this death and destruction all around them, and they're not sure how to respond to it, how to deal with it, and how to incorporate it into their worldview. And as a result, I think that this sort of massacre, just like the My Lai massacre in Vietnam, is... I don't want to say it's inevitable, but it sure seems like it's bound to happen. And I posted something on my blog recently called uh, Afghanistan, a Gathering Menace by a guy named Neil Shea. And he writes this, uh, quote, in, Since 2006, I have written off and on about the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Nearly all my work in those countries have been done embedded with NATO, mostly American military units. Many times I have watched soldiers or Marines driven by boredom or fear behave selfishly and meanly, even illegally, in minor ways. In a few searing moments, I have wondered what would come next, what the men would do to prisoners or civilians or suspected insurgents. And I have wondered how to destroy describe these moments without reporting melodramatic minutia or betraying the men who allowed me in. And I think his perspective is really important because I've been, you know, for years and years, decades, I suppose, by this point, I have been a passionate advocate for peace and an opponent of U.S. military in, in intervention around the world. However, I also have former students who have joined the military, and I have friends that I've met in various ways and means who, who are members of the military. And as I've said before, and I will say again and again and again, I have incredible respect for the courage and the dedication and the willingness to serve that these men and women show. I think it's remarkable. I don't think I would ever have the courage to go and serve overseas in a military capacity. And so I, I, am, I am incredibly uh, humbled and honored by the sacrifices these men and women make. However, I think that in a way, that respect and uh, perspective on these men and women in uniform means we have to make sure that they, for instance, don't get sent on like six deployments in a row and that they get proper help for the incredible stress and agony, uh, whether it takes the form of post-traumatic stress disorder or something that's not technically classified. And there's a whole lot of stuff we could say about how ridiculed people are if they say, yes, I'm feeling a little post-traumatic stress disorder-y. Uh, if you if you claim that in the military, a lot of times soldiers have said, then you get ridiculed. Uh, sometimes people say, "Oh, you just can't deal with it. You're not a real man." Whatever it is, and that means that people don't get the help they need, and they may end up, you know, losing jobs. They may end up hurting people in civilian life. They may end up abusing wives or girlfriends or whatever it is. There's a really good frontline documentary called "The Wounded Platoon" that I will link to from the website, uh, also with the show notes on this show. And all of it is to say that you know what? I I, I don't buy this notion that this guy in Afghanistan just sort of he was a complete lunatic because of course the question then is well why'd you let a complete lunatic enter Afghanistan and get a weapon but I don't I don't think that's the case I think he was you know driven to a point of incredible stress and, and desperation and I'm not obviously trying to excuse his actions you know he needs to be tried he needs to be sentenced I believe he should go to prison but uh, it's not as though he's just some incomplete insane individual who suddenly just snapped out of nowhere uh, and we ought to look at I've said it before. I think we should get out of Afghanistan. I'll end it there. Let's move on to a more happy topic. Trayvon Martin. In case you didn't listen to last week's show, uh, there was a 17-year-old black kid named Trayvon Martin who was in a gated community in Florida, and he was followed. There was a guy named George Zimmerman who was a... Kind of like, if you watch The American Office, he's kind of like Dwight Schrute. Like, he's a volunteer. I don't think he's even a sheriff's deputy. He was like a neighborhood watch volunteer 
but he was licensed to carry a gun, and that's going to be important later on. Zimmerman said he's suspicious that they released the 911 calls, and one of them has Zimmerman saying, this guy looks like he's up to no good, he's on drugs or something, uh, he had his hand in his waistband, he's walking around looking at homes, and he said, these a-holes, they always get away. Uh, and then he started pursuing the guy. Now, here's where the question comes up about why George Zimmerman shot and killed Trayvon Martin. Trayvon Martin ended up having a soda and candy in his you know, his hoodie sweatshirt or something. Uh, totally unarmed. Zimmerman had a gun. And he's claiming self-defense. And the question is, was it self-defense or was it something else? Um, Traven Martin's family says it's quite clear it wasn't self-defense. Uh, he was yelling for help. And the, the, the thing about yelling for help comes from the 911 calls, which were released because a lot of neighbors had called in and say there was a scuffle or a fight of some kind. And... Uh, you can hear one of the 911 calls, somebody's calling for help. Now, Zimmerman's saying that was him calling for help because Trayvon Martin is accosting him or something. Uh, Martin's family says that it's their son calling for help. So the question is, who was calling for help and how much of a threat was Trayvon Martin? This unarmed kid, he was armed with soda. Oh, gotta watch out, man. He's got a soda car. He's got a bottle of soda. Back off, back off. It's like Amadou Diallo in New York City. He's got his wallet. Quick, shoot him. And I don't want to minimize the degree to which law enforcement or volunteer neighborhood watch volunteers are in a stressful situation and they don't know whether a person has a gun or not and they have to shoot first and ask questions last. However, uh, as the New York Times points out, uh, recently this week there was a grand jury which uh, decided to take up this case of Trayvon Martin in part because I, I don't know if the grand jury did it because of this, but every news report I've seen has referenced the change.com petition where 500,000 people have said, we'd like to have this Zimmerman guy put before a grand jury. We think that might be worthwhile. Uh, so the New York Times mentioned that. Anyway, uh, New York Times also says this, <clears throat> the shooting has raised new questions about Florida's stand your ground law, which was approved in 2005. The law does not require a person who is threatened to retreat in order to claim self-defense. And Mr. Zimmerman has claimed that he fired his weapon while defending himself. So in other words, it's, it's a very sort of liberal interpretation of the notion of self-defense and people can you know, claim self-defense even though they're chasing someone down, and in this case, shooting them to death. And I don't know. I think that if you're chasing someone down and then you shoot them to death, it's hard to imagine what you mean by self-defense. I mean, let's say he thought that Trayvon Martin had stolen something from someone, and he's like, these a-holes always get away. At that point, you go, I mean, he was on the phone to the police, and in fact, the police said, oh, why don't you meet us by this mailbox? And he's like, yeah, okay. And then he says later, oh, you know what? Have him call me, and I'll tell him where I am. So this dude is like playing, again, it's Dwight Schrute to accept he's actually willing to kill it. I, don't, I think Dwight Schrute would reach this point and go, oh man, I can't, you know, justify shooting this kid. I don't know enough about him. He would go off and kill a goose or something. But this guy, Zimmerman, uh, decided that Trayvon Martin needs to die. And people have said that, uh, again, I don't want to demonize George Zimmerman because He's described in a lot of reports that I've read as being a you know quiet quiet guy who studied criminal justice and he was in trouble with the law at one point, but uh, they decided not to press charges and this and that. Um, and so I, I you know I'll give Zimmerman some benefit of the doubt I suppose and say like we don't really know what happened, but you know the Martin family's made it clear. They said in the the follow up to the change.com or change.org uh, petition, they said quote we're not looking for revenge, we're looking for justice. The kind of justice anybody would want if their son had been killed 
for no reason. And that's at the end of the day, that's what happened. And even if George Zimmerman says, like, I made a mistake, uh, I, I thought he was a criminal, I thought he was, you know, breaking the law, that's not enough of a reason to shoot a person dead. I'm sorry to say it, okay? And, and I always have to think, and I've never shot a gun, I don't really know what it's like, I can't imagine what it's like to be a cop, and I'll say here, of course, I have a lot of respect for police officers who are willing to put their life on the line in order to protect me and my comfortable middle-class life. Of course, yes, yes, yes. But I always wonder in these cases, why didn't he like shoot him in the foot or like try to debilitate? I maybe I'm playing too much Fallout these days because I'm like, you just go into vats and then you aim at the foot and there's no problem. Okay, that's armchair quarterbacking. Maybe I've said enough about uh, that whole thing. But again, the story of Trayvon Martin, it's I think it's just starting to get interesting because now there's a grand jury involved. The U.S. Justice Department is getting involved. Al Sharpton's getting involved. Oh snap! You know we got something crazy going on, people. Stay tuned. <sighs> All right, uh, economics. <laughs> this better not be about high-speed frequency trading again. Oh, yes, it is. I just can't stop finding out about this. I got a Google News alert for high-frequency trading, and I just every day it's like something new comes across my desk. And I have a student who at one point said, hey, I, the one who gave me the economist, the economist article that I mentioned last week, and every time I see an article like this, I'm like printing it out, highlighting it, giving it to him. I'm not insane, because that's the thing. Look, when I get in front of my class especially, or if I you know, put on my headset and start talking into my computer, and I go, the robots are taking over Wall Street. They're doing all sorts of things. We have no idea what they're doing. We got to start watching the robots. Everyone's like, oh, God, this guy is one of those Fruit Loops. He's just a nut job. He thinks Terminator 2 is real. For the record, I know that Terminator 2 is not a documentary film. I said that last week as a joke. But but I'm that guy. I'm that nut job, wing nut. Ugh, he's crazy. But you know what? I'm not insane, okay? This high-frequency trading thing is a concern, and I'm not the only one who's saying it. This week, uh, the report comes from Bloomsburg Business Week, the most left-wing, radical, lunatic left publication in existence, right? They had a new article that said, regulators are slow to act on speed traders. And uh, the article is written by a guy named Matthew Phillips on March 19th. And he says, the problem for regulators is twofold. They lack not only expertise, but also the technology to police speed traders adequately. Last month, after her agency had spent more than a year, more than a year, studying the complexities of high-frequency trading, SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, Chairwoman Mary Shapiro, admitted that regulators still don't understand the industry enough to police it sufficiently. The regulators don't understand it. This and uh, that's now. This is me talking about the article. Uh, Alan Greenspan. This reminds me of when Alan Greenspan said, "Like I don't really understand the uh, uh, over-the-counter collateralized debt obligations." You know, and he was chairman of the Federal Reserve at that time. How about this for a, a general rule about how the U.S. government ought to look at the world of Wall Street? If the chairman of the Fed doesn't understand it, it's illegal. How's that for a concept? Because I'll bet you these people would be busting into the Fed office with their helpful PowerPoints, breaking it all down in simple, easy-to-understand language, ELI-5, lickety-split. If that were the case, no. they just go, look, just trust us. You may not understand what we're doing, but you can trust us. We won't have any more of those flash crashes. Yes, we will. Back to the article. Even if they did, they still don't have the advanced computer systems to keep up. It's as if the regulators are on horseback while the traders are in Ferraris. And there's this trader guy who says to say that they're outmatched would be an understatement, says Saluzzi. And I'm trying to find who Saluzzi is, but I don't even I don't know and I don't remember. I don't care. Uh, later in the article it says 
regulating this stuff costs money. And here's the kicker for people in the U.S. As long as shrinking government is the order of the day among congressional Republicans, regulators are going to have a hard time getting the resources needed to keep up with speed traders. So this is yet one more reason why when I hear Grover Norquist, and if you, oh man, I got to put this in the show notes too. Grover Norquist got ripped from eye to foot by Jon Stewart. Watching Jon Stewart go after someone like Jim Cramer or uh, Tucker Carlson on The Daily Show, I guess he went after Tucker on uh, CNN Crossfire. But seeing Jon Stewart go after them, Jon Stewart is so awesome because he does his homework and he knows exactly what to say when these people start in with their talking points. And Jim Cramer goes, oh, I would like to give people advice I have. And he says, what about this when you said this? And Jim Cramer goes, oh, well, you know, sometimes I get all excited. And John Stewart says, yeah, but then you said this the next week, and then you said this the week after that. And he, he always is so calm, and he's just like, here's why what you say is a load of crap. Okay, so watching Grover Norquist squirm and, and just keep going back to the same point. Well, if you can't have taxes off the table, then you can't talk about cutting spending and blah, 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 blah. And John Stewart just kept pointing out, you know what, I don't want to hear that because we never get to the discussion about cutting spending. And I would point out, when we do get to the discussion about cutting spending, it's always a bunch of hogwash about, oh, the, the, the Department of Education or the Energy Department. What do we need those for? And meanwhile, those things are tiny slivers of the federal budget. And then we get to things like Medicare and Social Security, people aren't going to stand for cutting that, but as long as you can demonize some tiny group, like people who get food stamps, suddenly everybody's like, oh, well, they're just freeloading off the system. Yeah, and if we were to completely abolish that program, we'd save .000001% of the federal budget. So don't give me that crap. Anyway, uh, the thing about high-frequency trading is to regulate it costs money. And as the article points out here, congressional Republicans, it's not just that shrinking government is the order of the day. Grover Norquist's organization has created this pledge that they, the people running for Congress as Republicans have to sign this pledge or else Grover Norquist's group will fund their opponents and their opponents will win. That says, the pledge says, I will never raise taxes, period, end of discussion. That's it. It's a promise. I will never raise taxes. And, and that's just, that's a, he came up with, as The Daily Show pointed out elsewhere, he came up with this when he was like 12 years old. And it's a 12-year-old's way of looking at government, which is to say it's completely unrealistic because occasionally you do need to raise taxes. Now, we can talk about, you know, making tax raises more intelligent. We can talk about cutting things. And I would argue, you know what, maybe we could cut some of these boondoggle defense programs that go to Halliburton and Dick Cheney's cronies, but that's a different matter. The point is this. It, it, the Congress, so once they get into office, and, and Grover Norquist's group will help them once they sign the pledge and never raise taxes because they want those people in office. Once they do, if you ever vote to raise taxes, say, to, in order to regulate this high-frequency trading crap, Grover Norquist immediately brands you as the enemy. You broke your word. You are a liar. Let's get him out of office. And it works. So in other words, Grover Norquist has effectively gotten a stranglehold on the entire discussion about anything involving the budget because he's able to bully these congressional Republicans into saying, I will never raise taxes. And once they get in, they go, well, I said I'd never raise taxes, so I can't even talk about anything. I bet if we had aliens invading and sucking people's eyeballs out, and suddenly the Defense Department's like, we need to fund this death ray that we can fight off the aliens with, then Grover Norquist people would be like, well, I'd like to. We don't want people to have their eyeballs sucked out, but you know what? I promise I would never raise taxes. Ah, my eyeballs! Makes me sick. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> charter schools. Why do I hate charter schools? Well, you know what? I actually don't hate charter schools. Okay, I'll say up front, I don't hate charter schools. In fact, charter schools, uh, a lot of charter schools in the United States 
were promoted by uh, union organizations, especially in New York City. The AFT was promoting a bunch of charter schools. I think that the Harlem's Children's Zone in New York is doing some great work to help fight the root causes of poverty and give kids a step up to get ahead in life and all the rest of it. I think that charter schools do add for some flexibility, and there's some interesting possibilities that charter schools offer. However... There's an interesting article in the New York Times by a, guy, a woman, oh, sorry, by a woman named Lucinda Rosenfeld, and she's the author of a book called "I'm So Happy for You." Um, and she talks about the headline of the article is "Why Charter Schools Can Hurt," and excuse me, how charter schools can hurt. And the the last two paragraphs say this uh, because she's talking about a uh, new charter school called the Cobble Hill Success Academy. And you should read the whole thing because she has a sort of overview of how it works in relationship to the public schools, PS 261, uh, nearby, and so forth and so on. And she ends by saying this. The existing schools in which the charter schools set up shop uh, suffer both in terms of resources, only so many kids can fit in the lunchroom at one time, and morale. If the Cobble Hill Success Academy opens as planned in the Brooklyn School for Global Studies, which also houses a second high school and a special needs program, in five years the building will be at 108% capacity. Unless, of course, the other schools shrivel up and die. Call us paranoid, but parents like me are starting to wonder whether Mayor Bloomberg's larger goal isn't to privatize the entire New York City public school system. Why else would he be foisting charters on communities that don't want them? And how else can he just justify diverting tax dollars to organizations that employ people to blanket neighborhoods with advertisements and try to poach students from public schools that are already thriving. And this comes back to the, one of the key concerns, is that we, we, we all recognize, I think, that people in the United States, I think, recognize that there are problems with public schools. Public schools in poor areas, especially areas that are mostly uh, contain African Americans and Latinos and, and Native Americans and the rest, uh, other so-called minorities, although on a global scale, if you look, they're actually the majority, so we should call white people the minority, whatever. Uh, those schools in those areas tend to be pretty crappy, okay? And I'm not going to argue the fact that there are a lot of teachers in these schools who aren't really trying very hard and administrators ought to go after those teachers and help you know get them brought up to speed figure out what they're doing train them to be better or get rid of them however I'm really worried that the hysteria about, and it's not a new hysteria, this goes back a long time, and if people are really interested, I wrote a piece on the Justified Text Works website, just-text.org, uh, that says, um, it's called A Profit Without Honors, and I, I get nervous, you know, this, this, this hysteria about schools, and it goes back to A Nation at Risk, which is in the 1980s, uh, which said that the schools are a crap hole, and everything's, they suck, and we need to get privatization in there because that's the way the business model is the answer it's not and i get nervous when people start talking about how bad the public schools are because i want to know how are you measuring that and how are you going to measure these charter schools so you can say they're so much better i want proof that they're actually better because a lot of times what happens when these charter schools go into creation they say well we can't be subjected to the same tests and you know uh, evaluation requirements that the public schools are subject to. Well, that completely invalidates your whole claim that these charter schools are better. And and these evaluation schemes that they impose on public schools are often used as a way to say this school has a D rating. And they do this. They actually give the schools, and now they're starting to give individual teachers a rating in terms of like, this is how good a teacher you are. This is how good your school is. Imagine going to work every day at a school and there's a big D on this. This school is a D I mean, I see with my students, you get a D in a class, it starts to affect you, you think, well, I'm a D student, and I have kids every day who come in, and I'm just stupid, I'm not, I'm good at this, I suck, and it breaks my heart, 
So I'm nervous about that being applied also to charter schools. Um, yeah. All right. Moving on. Uh, let's talk about sexual violence. Woohoo! This is where the stuff gets funny. Let me tell you. No. Um, there's this website called Project Unbreakable. It's a Tumblr. But now, hang on a second, because a lot of people hear Tumblr and they're like, oh, that's it, forget it. It's silly gifts of cats or whatever. Actually, this is a very powerful website. I encourage you to go to unbreak projectunbreakable.tumblr.com and spend an hour reading these posts uh, because it's an art exhibit where the photographer, uh, I guess it's a group of people, they ask people who have experienced rape or sexual assault to write some words that their attacker said during the assault, and then they hold them up, and and that's it. And if you can watch this, if you can look at this without feeling really miserable or having your heart go out to these people, um, it's 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 an amazing project, and it's so heartbreaking, obviously, but it's also uh, obviously an attempt to try to regain some power through uh, claiming these words or to showing the world, look, I'm not going to be quiet about this. And, you know, one of the things obviously that happens with rape victims and people who've been molested as children. And speaking of which, This American Life recently had a really good story from a guy who was molested as a kid. And he says molestation doesn't really even encapsulate what happened to me. It was rape. It was violent. It was, you know, horrible. Um, yeah, one of the things that makes the, the, the incident itself even worse is that people often feel like it's somehow their fault. The attacker often says, if you tell anybody, I will kill you and, and the rest of it. And so this project, of course, is a way of helping people to sort of speak out and say, no, it's not okay. This bastard did this thing to me and here's this information and all the rest of it. So again, Project Unbreakable, very powerful. Go and check it out and uh, yeah, learn about the horrors of what humans can do to other humans. As if we needed another reminder of that, right? Anyway, speaking of speaking out, uh, I saw a very interesting article on CNN recently about Miss America. Now, normally I look at Miss America, I'm like, oh, give me a break. Who cares? A beauty contest. And, you know, yeah, this is a way for Rush Limbaugh to say he's a feminist because he judged Miss America one time. What? I don't even want to get it. I'm not even going to dignify Rush Limbaugh by giving him any time on my show. Although I would point out that this is basically the same thing that he does, except that I'm awesome and Rush Limbaugh is a scumbag. Anyway, uh, this woman who is Miss America, Kirsten Haglund, uh, spoke out very recently about the uh, difficulties she had in her life dealing with anorexia. And a quote from the article said, I remember the first day I decided to throw away my lunch and drank a Coke instead. She said, I felt really good. I remember that day and the choice I made. And it was a choice made out of fear, not logic. And her story about dealing with anorexia is very important for us to, to be aware of, especially those of us who work with, you know, teenagers where anorexia really sort of hits its stride. Um, and it's, it, it's, 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 uh, anorexia, of course, is a problem that has a lot to do with the culture industries and how, for instance, you know, Marilyn Monroe was the sex symbol of the 50s. She would be laughed out of a modeling agency now because she's too fat. And, and, and if you go back even further and you look at the, uh, um, there's a, a statue, the Venus of Willendorf. Uh, I'll put a clip, a link to a picture of her on my blog. And, uh, you know, I mean, she was a, she, you know, very, very fat woman. Uh, but she was considered the apex of female beauty. And the point is that, you know, we, we, we our, our visions of female beauty and male beauty, of course, uh, 
change over time. And there's this mythology that says, like, well, guys are just attracted to what's hot. No, we're not. We're attracted to what the every image around us, and we are inundated constantly with these images and videos and video games even that say this is what's hot. And we just internalize it and we start to think, oh yeah, that's what's hot. And we expect women to abide by that standard of what's beautiful. But of course it changes over time. And as we've seen in the last 50 years, it's become skinnier, 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 skinnier. And this matters because young girls and young women have this attitude of the, the most important thing for me to be is skinny. And it's it's not as though... You know, a lot of guys respond to it by saying, oh, well, you should just know better than that. You should just don't worry about it. Who cares? You know, but you know what? It, every comment that they hear, every comment that, that we issue about, you know, oh, she's fatty or, you know, on Reddit sometimes there'd be a picture of a. There was this thing on the atheism subreddit. Where, and if you don't know about Reddit, I don't know. Go to reddit.com. It's a good site, but there's a lot of idiots on it. <laughs> but there's a lot of cool people, too. Let me know. If you're interested in Reddit, I will tell you what the cool Reddits are to go to. Anyway, uh, there's a, on the atheism Reddit, there's this young lady who said, oh, I got this uh, book. It was a Christian book. And she's like, I had to argue with my parents, blah, blah, blah. You know, on atheism, they post about this stuff all the time. Anyway, there was, she, you could see her in the picture holding up the book. And a lot of the guys on Reddit were like, oh, she's hot. I'd do her. And the rest of this ignorant claptrap. And, and, and there's this whole discussion that sparked because people are like, Oh, why did she put herself in the picture? She didn't want people to comment on her. But it's pathetic because guys do that all the time. And and, and, and there's a double standard because if a woman appears on the internet, suddenly guys are like, oh, I'm going to comment on the way she looks, the way she sounds. And anybody who plays video games who's a female or a male, you know that's how it works on the games. As soon as a female voice is heard in the lobby, everyone's like, are you a chick? Hey, you want to hook up? Inundated with private messages. Hey, come on. Blah, blah, blah. It's pathetic. And guys need to stand up and say something because too often guys are just like, well, that's the way guys are. We're dogs. What can you say? You know what? You could say something, okay? It's pathetic. You guys don't speak out more. But whatever. I'm not here to harangue people about that because I'm out of time and I'm exhausted. I still haven't eaten dinner. Oh, my God. And we're at the 45-minute mark. So real quick, let me talk about Narcissist. He's an awesome rapper. Uh, he is an Iraqi-Canadian journalist and hip-hop MC. That's how he's described on the Wikipedia page. Uh, his real name is Yasin al uh, I'm going to say this wrong. Al Salman, uh, better known by his stage name, the narcissist or Narcy. He's also on Twitter, and he's a really cool guy. When I played his song Fatwa on, and it's P-H-A-T-W-A, and it's poking fun at the notion of the actual Fatwa, which is a death order, as the as in the one issued for Salman Rushdie after the Satanic Verses, blah, blah, blah. Uh, anyway, his song uh, Fatwa. You know what? I'm just going to play a clip from Fatwa right here, right now. Take it away, Narcy. Yeah, so uh, I played that for my hip-hop class, and it was a very positive response. The students are very rarely unanimous about what they like, but they like that song. And so I wanted to write to him because he's on Twitter and he responds to things sometimes. So I wrote him this email, and I was like, hey, you know, I just want you to know the kids really liked it, and they thought the video was great and all the rest of it. So, um, yeah, I, I wrote, and he wrote back. 
And he said, uh, quote, thank you for this wonderful message. I'm sorry this is late in response, but blah, blah, blah. I'm humbled by the fact you're sharing this with the younger generation. Have them think about these things before they get to university. I think these are important times, and et cetera, et cetera. And uh, he talked a little bit about the song Fatwa, and I just think he's awesome, and it's such a shame that nobody knows about him. He was part of a rap group called Euphrates, which was really awesome, and uh, I really think you should check it out because uh, The Narcissist is just a really awesome artist. And uh, so, yeah, check him out, The Narcissist, and I'm pretty sure he's at thenarcissist.com or something. Something like that. Um, so go and check them out. And uh, yeah, narcy.net. That's his official website. There you go. Go to narcy.net and I will link to it from my blog and all the rest of it. Okay, I got to wrap this up. I am exhausted. I'm hungry. I'm tired. I'm done. Uh, I want to thank Stu and Chinny and Phil Olson and John Mouse and Old Spicy and everybody else who's been writing in with such positive feedback. And I really appreciate the fact that people are listening to this and that. And I'm honored that people think I have something worth saying. And I hope I make it worth your while. And I'm trying to make it a little funnier because I know it's not always that entertaining to listen to me ramble on for 45 minutes about human rights atrocities in Syria and people getting shot and, and all the rest of it so here's a joke there's two fish in a tank and one of them says i'll man the controls you can get on the cannon <laughs> get it because it's tank you think it's a fish tank but actually it's like a military tank it's a play on words the taxes the finger thing means the taxes all right let me give the quote of the week Ralph Ellison, the guy who wrote Invisible Man. If you've never read Invisible Man, you should totally read it. Awesome book. Uh, maybe one of the most important books, uh, novels ever written about race in America. Anyway, Ralph Ellison once said, quote, We are faced with endless possibilities for change, for metamorphosis. We change our environment, our speech, our style of living, our dress, and often our values. We become somebody else. End quote. And that made me think about Chinua Achebe, who's a really awesome uh, Nigerian writer, or Igbo uh, writer, and uh, I wrote the Wikipedia article about Chinua Achebe, so you should totally check him out. And he said, quote, this is from his novel, Ant Hills of the Savannah, quote, whatever you are is never enough. You must find a way to accept something, however small, from the other, to make you whole, and to save you from the mortal sin of righteousness and extremism. So, yeah, I agree with that. And people should go out and change and become more than you are and embrace the other and let's make things better. And I'm going to stop talking now. Deviant Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Nucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful.